Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Haley Moss. Haley is an attorney, author, artist, and advocate. At age three, Haley was diagnosed with autism. In 2015, Haley graduated from the University of Florida with a Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Law, as well as a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, completing both degrees in three years. After the University of Florida, Haley attended the University of Miami School of Law, where she was named a Miami Public Interest Scholar committed to promoting access to justice for all. When Haley was admitted to the Florida Bar in 2019, she made international headlines as Florida's first documented openly autistic attorney. Today, Haley advocates for the legal profession to embrace neurodiversity. In addition to being an attorney, Haley has authored four books, Middle School, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About, A Freshman Survival Guide for College Students with Autism Spectrum Disorders, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About, Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals, and finally, The Young Autistic Adults Independence Handbook. Haley's writings about autism and neurodiversity have appeared in the Washington Post, Teen Vogue, Bustle Fast Company, and numerous other websites and publications. Haley is also an accomplished artist whose style is best described as an influence between pop art and anime with its varying color palettes and whimsical style. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much again, Haley, for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Haley, I generally like to start my podcast off by asking my guests about their career journey. Can you share with us a little bit about your background and how you became one of the first openly autistic attorneys in Florida? Sure. And when we talk about background, I think it's really important to look at this as a whole person type thing. And I say that in the fact that I always joke that I'm someone who I feel like should not or not have been expected for that matter to become an attorney. I was diagnosed with autism in the late 1990s, kind of a different time. I always like to remind folks, you know, not widespread internet, everything was dial up, the Backstreet Boys are still popular, <laughs> just not quite what we have now. So when I was first diagnosed in the late 90s, I was a late speaker, so I wasn't talking that the autism and neurodiversity resources that existed were pretty sparse compared to now. Now you could just punch anything into Google and there's a lot. In fact, I think it's almost overwhelming now. And back then it wasn't really that way. And the general awareness, let alone understanding and acceptance around autism was very different. So my parents originally first thought that I must have had a hearing or speech related disability more so than something a lot more comprehensive. And I like to fast forward a lot because I don't want to just dwell on my childhood. That's kind of hard when you're talking about career. Yeah, anyway. Definitely. 
But thanks to having a very supportive family, speech and occupational therapy, and folks who actually believed in me that weren't that first clinician who diagnosed me, I did end up going to college. I went to University of Florida, so go Gators. Hopefully they don't break my heart in football this year, as they tend to do every year. Every school I've went to somehow makes me very sad as a sports fan, (laughs) but I digress. And when I was at UF, I originally thought, like so many young, eager beavers who go to college, that I was going to be a physician. I wanted to be a psychiatrist because as someone on the autism spectrum, I tend not to be great at understanding people. I am not great at reading in between the lines, the social cues, and sometimes even giving the responses that people expect when they come to me for advice or their issues and challenges and problems. I thought that the coolest thing would be to learn how the human brain works, understand all the science and all the different things behind how our brains work, and be able to help people with their problems. That was my original career plan at 18 years old. And I thought it was absolutely foolproof, and I would be the next Dr. Moss. Unfortunately for me, I came across something that many of us are probably familiar with, and that was first-year chemistry. And it did not go well. I found it wasn't making me happy. I was constantly stressed, and I felt like I was going to get, like so many others, weeded out. So I was like, you know what? I do not want to be this stressed for the next three, four years plus. I don't think this is healthy. I don't think this is right back to the drawing board to figure out what it is I actually want to do. I did, however, decide to stay with the psychology major just because I really am that fascinated by trying to understand people. And I had to think about what it was that I actually enjoyed. And what I actually enjoyed was writing, talking, and helping people. So that's how I kind of landed on law school and lawyers, because I thought that's what we do. We write, we talk, and we help people. At least the good ones of us help people. Exactly. Not all villains. That's always what I like to remind people. It's kind of like not all lawyers are bad people. A lot of us genuinely do want to help and make the world a better place. Yeah, I have to remind my family that we all don't turn to the dark side of the force. Exactly. And I was very hopeful about that. And I realized that this profession has a way of combining all the things that make me excited and interested. And I was already doing advocacy work as an autistic person since I was a teenager. I'd already written a book by then. I was writing my second one while I was in college. Like I was a busy person. I was always up to something. And when I got to law school, I think that's the first time that I realized like I can do so much more and how many doors just going to law school and having a law degree really has. And I think what really happened as well is when I was in law school, I didn't know any attorneys with disabilities I didn't know any other autistic people. I felt very isolated in that respect because we all know how there's so many different affinity groups and things like that when you are a marginalized person, that there's LGBTQ plus bar associations, there's different organizations for women attorneys and for people of color and all sorts of different racial groups, et cetera. Like there's so much out there if you're a marginalized attorney. And for attorneys and law students with disabilities, when I was in law school, there really wasn't that much. So I felt very isolated and also very misunderstood by my peers because I was pretty much trying to just survive. And what happens when you don't have the support that you need from the university or the law school, whether it's accommodation requests being denied or just not being understood, you're basically self-accommodating and doing your best to just get through. And your peers think that you were getting every accommodation in the book because (laughs) you have a disability and their perception and reality could not be more separate from one another. 
So that was an interesting thing. And it was the first time I really experienced that. And it was difficult because I always had the support that I needed when I was in college. I had support that I needed when I lived at home and was in high school, et cetera. And law school is kind of that rude awakening. And especially because I graduated college early. So I was 20 when I finished college. I entered law school right at my 21st birthday. I was young and naive and truly didn't know better. So every time I reflect on this, I have to remind myself that I was young and naive and probably just didn't know how to navigate so many systems that require advocacy skills when you're a young person. Exactly. A lot of that is how I got to this place, I guess, because what ends up happening is I work at a disability rights nonprofit during my 1L summer. I thought that was what I was going to do was become a disability rights attorney. I had lots of feelings. I felt overly empathetic to the people I represented because there wasn't really that much that separated me from them other than just one unfortunate change in life circumstances. I think about like the very first case that I worked on was a young woman with epilepsy who was maybe two or three years older than me and she was getting evicted because of her service animal or emotional support animal, something like that. And not that much separated me from her other than maybe two years and her living in a less supportive condominium building than me. Like, if you want to look at it like that, I don't currently have an emotional support or service animal, but I feel like that's something that I might've wanted to do. I don't know. That kind of, kind of spooked me at some point, but I digress. And the over empathy part kind of drove me away from that. And my first job out of law school, I actually worked in healthcare litigation because I represented hospitals and hospitals are not people. I don't care what they do after five o'clock. <laughs> There you go. And that's not a lot. And I think people have this misconception, especially with autism, that we just are robots or not empathetic. And I was like, I just feel too much that I can't do it otherwise. So once I start my job and get sworn into the bar, my story goes viral, which is the wildest thing that has ever happened to me. And I think we can be here all day talking about how your life just changes when the whole internet basically reads about you and watches YouTube videos about you. That must be really a surreal experience. And and I do want to touch on something you just mentioned, um, Haley, and, and that's about, um, you know, not being empathetic. And a lot of people don't think autistic people are empathetic. Can you define first what autism is? Because I think a lot of us, myself included, think we know what autism means. And, and I, I think that probably some of what we think we know it means really isn't actually what autism is. That's such a great question because I feel like there's no perfect definition of autism because there's the very medical-based definitions from like the DSM. And then there's things that are a lot more neurodiversity affirming. So I use more of a neurodiversity type lens when I talk about autism, a little bit of everything. Like what is autism? I feel like is kind of this like million dollar question almost. And the way that I look at autism is that it is a neurodevelopmental disability. So it it affects my brain, and it's also something that's developmental, so it appears during childhood. And it's marked pretty much by a spectrum of differences in social communication, interaction, sensory processing, and experiences. A lot of us have intense passions and interests and repetitive behaviors. So that kind of says a whole lot of nothing when you think about it. But a lot of us do have different social skills and interaction components that sensory processing is something that might be heightened for us or experiences. So we might get very overwhelmed or perceive all the things. A lot of us do have these very intense interests and passions. So when you see someone who might be, say, a walking encyclopedia on a topic, that happens quite a bit. 
And when we talk about repetitive behaviors, this is something that in our community is no like self-stimulatory behaviors or doing some of the same things over and over again in order to calm ourselves down or to express different emotions. So for me, I am always fidgeting with something. My hands are always moving. When I get really, really excited, my hands flap a lot. And I realize that most people don't have that experience. And sometimes if you don't know what you're looking at, it looks kind of silly. But for me, it is a full body joy that I only wish that most people could experience. And when we think about what is autism again, I also want to emphasize that There is no singular version of autism or one experience that is universal per se, that if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, as Dr. Stephen Shore often says. So you might have folks who also have an intellectual disability, who might be non-speakers, who might have different language perception, different challenges with executive functioning and keeping things organized and starting and stopping things and basically just getting stuff done. That's one of the biggest things in my life that's super difficult. So I guess it's more of, for me, is how does autism affect me might be another question that I'm mentally thinking through as well. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that's a great segue because we're going to spend the rest of this podcast talking about neurodiversity, an area that you spend a lot of your time in. And and I think before we we get into the nitty gritties uh, on that, I think it would be helpful if you could define for us, similar to what you just did for autism, what neurodiversity is and actually who falls under the neurodiversity umbrella. Absolutely. So neurodiversity as a concept is really saying that we all have different brains. And that's a biological fact. We're all different and we all perceive and experience the world differently. I think when we talk about neurodiversity, there's this tendency to go into this idea of diversity of thought. And diversity of thought is not the same as neurodiversity. So just because we all have different brains does not have anything to do with that we have different opinions. It's all how we process things that the way that you might experience the world is very different than the way I do. So for you, something might be perceived as very cold. And to me, I don't even notice it. Or even just how we think through things is very different. And all of us are under this neurodiverse concept. It's just that some of us are labeled as neurotypical and that your brain and different interactions and all sorts of things in cognition is seen as expected and typical. I don't like the word normal. It just doesn't really describe anything. So, but I guess that's kind of how people look at neurotypical is this idea of normalcy. And then you have folks who are neurodivergent and our brains work outside of this expectation out of the box. And people who are neurodivergent includes a whole bunch of us. There's this other kind of belief that folks fall into that it's a synonym for autism slash ADHD, but neurodivergence is a very broad umbrella that includes not just your autistic people, people with ADHD and learning disabilities who are seen as more, quote unquote, desirable or hireable in the case of workplace stuff, but also folks with intellectual disabilities, mental health disabilities, things like Tourette syndrome, for instance, and even acquired cognitive disabilities like a traumatic brain injury or Alzheimer's or dementia are all forms of neurodivergence. So anything that essentially changes how you experience the world and your brain is neurodivergence. And this affects a whole bunch of us that a lot of us are neurodivergent and have some of these different traits that affect how we experience life, essentially. Absolutely. And and in fact, I think um, I want to ask you, because I, I know this is something you've spoken a lot on, when we start to look at employment statistics, what, what does it look like for people who have disabilities? When we think about disability more broadly, 
employment is not always fantastic. And when we talk about autistic people like myself, that we have it the worst pretty much, at least out of what's out there, is that a lot of us are unemployed or underemployed, especially if you are a college graduate on the spectrum that estimates can be as high as about 85%. But we think who is being paid people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, it's a little over a third of us. And something else that's really interesting is even when we think about employment, there's a bunch of reasons why there's unemployment. Is it could be that we don't do well in traditional interviews. It could be things like A lot of us may choose to work part-time because we are receiving benefits from the government and that your eligibility for disability benefits does depend on your employment, how much you make, how many hours you work, et cetera. There's a lot of policy failures that also go into this too. There's things like subminimum wage components in certain programs, which we could be here all day discussing. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because I think people think there's kind of a one size fits all to why the employment rates are what they are. But the thing that I find really alarming, not just for attorneys, but for all of us, is there's also a huge salary disparity for people with disabilities. And this becomes more prominent and more obvious once you move into jobs that do require levels of higher education. So what ends up happening is once you get past college and you start attaining terminal degrees like a JD, that those salary differences and disparities are highlighted that much more. And for recent grads and lawyers with disabilities, I remember reading that one of those disparities for entry level was about $10,000 difference on average. Wow. For recent grads. It's and it's just terrifying, honestly. It's it's daunting because I think about this a lot. Like when I was even in law school, I remember thinking there's a very good chance I'm not gonna have a job after graduation. And not because I wasn't qualified, but because of how other people view me, how other people take into account my disability status. Do I disclose? Do I not like it's a whole calculus to it? And when you look at the data on lawyers with disabilities, so few of us exist according to the data. And that's because a lot of people don't self-report. Uh, that's what I was going to say. A lot of people aren't going to say they have ADHD or they're autistic or or they have dyslexia or something like that. Even things like chronic health conditions, people are just not going to report it unless they absolutely have to. So when you look at who's reporting, it's about less than 1% consistently. Every single year, the data from the National Association for Law Placement does say less than 1%. And this hasn't changed in the last couple of years. And when you think about who is disabled in America, it's about 25% of people. Now, like many of us, I did not go to law school because I'm great at math, but I do know enough to know that 1% and 25% look nothing alike. <laughs> exactly. So, so there's there's that. And our profession also just isn't great at addressing things like neurodiversity. Is Think about even the health and wellness type events and initiatives that happen. Everything is almost squarely focused on anxiety, depression, and substance use disorders. Very much so. Yeah. And state bars require us to take that as CLEs, in fact. Us too, that their mental health and mental illness elimination of bias, depending on where you live. Substance abuse, CLE classes, things like that. Yep. I have a lot of feelings. I actually served the last year on my state's lawyer's assistance program board because I was the liaison for the Young Lawyers Division. And just those were the big three that they would talk about. And it ends up excluding a whole host of people. 
is that we see that this is all as a health and wellness issue. And also it excludes the people who are neurodivergent and not just in the anxiety depression box. And I think about this, especially with lawyers who do have, say, ADHD or autism, like a lot of us also do have anxiety and depression, but that's almost something that's expected in a way that so many of us do have these co-occurring conditions. It's not, they don't just happen usually one at a time. And what was really interesting when the profession does its focus, they did a study on mental health back in 2018. And of course, it was all about anxiety, depression, substance use. And they had this nice little statistic buried in there about how many had ADHD, and it was like 12.5%. And then the study never talked about it again. And it made me just want to scream because I was like, okay, we have more neurodivergence than the general population in this profession. And we are not going to talk about it. It's like mental illness in the legal profession. We just don't really want to talk about that either. We only want to talk about it when it comes to character and fitness. That's what I figured out. Everyone wants to talk about it as a character and fitness issue for law students. And if it becomes something that affects a lawyer's ability to practice law. Other than that, we do not want to talk about, you know, being successful. We think of these are things that have to be dealt with, not something that you can live with and still thrive. It's just how do we manage and how do we make it so it's not the most stigmatizing thing out there. Absolutely. And and speaking of thriving, I mean, I think people forget about that, that there are benefits and uh, to having neurodiverse employees. And, and I was hoping you could share some of those with us. Oh, my gosh. So I, I think when we talk about the benefits of neurodiversity, I think we have to not just look at it as this person is good for business. And I think that's something that we tend to do. And the reason I want to get out of that mindset, the more I think about it, is there are people who don't have savant skills. And a lot of the focus on neurodiverse hiring usually does include things like savant skills of people who are technology wizards and that are able to do these things that are so almost superhuman, that you should not have to be superhuman to be seen as worthy and valued. Is the more I think about it, the more I'm like, how do we just let quote unquote average neurodiverse people just exist? Like, how do we just give everybody the opportunities they deserve? But when we think about those benefits, especially because the tech sector has been a very big proponent of neurodiversity at work, that what they really like to do is they hire all sorts of different engineers and all sorts of people in these STEM type roles. And what ends up happening is they they create technical fixes that save them lots of money. They are able to be more productive, all sorts of things like that. But we're humans, not robots. So whenever we talk about productivity as the answer, I always kind of scratch my head a little bit. Absolutely. But something that does happen when we do have disability inclusion more broadly is companies make more money. I know that they like to sell it as though we're these good-hearted people for employing people with disabilities. I think about my local grocery store a lot. They hire a lot of autistics and people with Down syndrome, and you feel good about it. And they pat themselves on their back for it. At the same time, they're making more money for it. (laughs) So... I think that's really interesting. And it also just makes us have good public opinions. Like we feel good about supporting people who support our community. We just always do. I think about that a lot in the legal sector. Like people just don't trust us. They don't trust lawyers. They don't like lawyers. But if they have a reason to actually like us, or even if it does look like we're patting ourselves on the back for doing the right thing or the only thing to do, that's a step up. Definitely. And of course, we all benefit from working with different kinds of people. Like we don't have one singular approach to solving client problems or firm-wide problems or even just approaching a legal analysis. Like if we did neurodiversity in our profession, 
just imagine how big those benefits could really be. I remember being in my first job and some of these assignments, I'd always have extra questions that maybe they didn't have answers to. And I would go find the answers. And those random answers that I had questions to were game changers in the arguments that we'd make. Absolutely. I mean, we're as attorneys supposed to be problem solvers. And so the more creative we can be at solving problems, the better results we're going to have for our clients. So why not include neurodiverse individuals in your team to help, you know, brainstorm with everybody else to come up with those creative solutions? Yeah, that's how I see it as well, is that you you might be the perfect lawyer for somebody because you understand things, you see things the same way they do or have this different perspective, or it's just that creativity. And I think we need to celebrate creativity sometimes in our profession as a lot of these neurodivergent folks have had to be creative their whole lives, either because they are very expressive or because they're just trying to adapt to a world that doesn't always have them in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So Haley, I wanted to move on and ask you about some of the barriers um, to neurodiversity in the workplace and how these prevent access and inclusion for these individuals. Oh my gosh. I think we are remiss if we don't talk about stigma, microaggressions, and ableism as kind of our big thing to get, get us started. And when I think about stigma and microaggressions, it's because we don't have the knowledge that we wish that we did. We are always kind of lost. We think that all autistic people are computer geniuses. We think that people with dyslexia, for instance, just can't spell and that they can't read and therefore they won't be good lawyers. Like we have all sorts of things in our heads. Or we think that every person with ADHD is just going to get distracted every 30 seconds and say squirrel. Like, we just don't know. And I think a lot of that's both culture and also just a lack of understanding. So that ends up breeding ableism, which really comes to this idea, put simply, that something is wrong with us, that we're failed versions of normal and need to be fixed. Now, ableism is a super complicated system. And the easy version of it is that it's stereotyping against people with disabilities and that we expect people to want to be fixed. We want to be quote unquote normal, all this stuff. But a more complicated version of ableism actually comes from another attorney and activist named T.L. Lewis. And Lewis does a really great job in defining ableism to be more of a system of value and that we're assigning these values based on how people's bodies and minds work on these ideas of what's normal, who's productive, who's desirable, intelligence, excellence, and all of that. And what ends up happening is that these ideas really do come from disability bias. They come from eugenics. They come from anti-Blackness and all sorts of different systems as well. And basically what ends up happening under Lewis's definition of ableism is you do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. Is that the way that we do assign these values of normalcy and productivity and desirable and intelligence and all that stuff, it ends up hurting most of us, which I find really fascinating. But when I also tell people you don't have to be disabled to experience this, I know if you are someone who has neurodivergent or disabled family members, people will treat you differently too. And you're experiencing disability bias, even if you don't think you are. And I think a lot of parents are usually very quick to point that out is how many people treat them differently when they tell me that they have an autistic kid or something, that there's the discrimination and stereotypes and biases that that kid experiences. And then there's the stuff that the parents face, that maybe they don't get invited to be with other parents. Maybe they get this extra look 
of pity or sympathy that they don't want. There's all sorts of ways that we end up experiencing this. But what ends up happening with these experiences of ableism is it really does translate into our professional lives too, that we start guessing who we think is capable. And what ends up happening, at least for me, is you start to internalize a lot of the stuff that people think about you. So you think that you're lazy, you think that you're stupid, you think all of this negative stuff, not like imposter syndrome stuff, but you really begin to internalize what people say about your own condition. And other people's biases make it really difficult. So what happened to me is I felt like I had to be superhuman all the time just to be given the same respect to prove I wasn't quote unquote like other autistic people or that I was more deserving, that I felt like I had to work that much harder to even get my foot in the door. And it meant that I was involved in all the student organizations. It meant that I took a internship, even if I didn't think that I wanted to or didn't know if I wanted to, because I thought that I needed that extra feather in my cap on my resume just to be seen as qualified compared to one of my more quote unquote neurotypical average classmates. That must have been exhausting. It is. And it's it's almost like a different magnified version of hustle culture in a way. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that I'm still trying to break the habit that I could just be average in some respects. Like I don't have to be exceptional at everything that I do. And I think that's a really hard thing to unlearn is you feel like you have to be superhuman in everything. And people still always make comments to me and it makes me sad. It's like, how do you do it all? Or you do you do so much and all that stuff. And I'm like, and part of me thinks it's not that I don't care. I don't love what I do, but I shouldn't have to do all that just to be able to have the same opportunity you do that. I wish that I had the luxury of being average every once in a while. Like, yeah, why not be extraordinary if you can? But you also want to feel like you could just not be great at things or just be average at it. And that's OK. And that's good enough. Accept it for who you are instead of having to try and be something that you're really not because none of us are superhuman. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That that must be challenging living with that day in and day out. And, and you know, you, you mentioned before about accommodations um, in passing. And I wanted to go back to that because I think a lot of employers think that if they hire somebody with a disability, that they're going to have to make all these accommodations and this is going to cause some type of undue hardship. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that point. Most accommodations are free or low cost. So if you're worried that it is going to be a huge hassle, it probably isn't. And you just have to sit down and actually chat with the person who is requesting or in need of an accommodation. So the Department of Labor usually estimates that accommodations on average are about $500. Majority of the time, they cost you zero. Every accommodation that I ever needed is zero. So I, for instance, wore headphones in my office because I'd get overwhelmed by the sound of the fluorescent lights humming or all the office chatter because I couldn't focus otherwise. Think about how many of us use glasses or contacts. You are using an accommodation for a visual impairment and nobody thinks anything of it. Nobody thinks you have supervision or have an unfair advantage or that we're doing something that's absolutely out of our way or difficult to accommodate you. We have this stigma around accommodations for literally everything that is not vision. It's really strange. It's so bizarre. Everything when it comes to accommodations is really just making those conversations and making those connections. It's a human thing. Is And all of us do this anyway. We all modify things to be more accessible and approachable for us individually. Maybe we automate certain systems like with calendar invites. I always ask people to send me calendar invites. It doesn't take you more than an extra 20 seconds to do it. But if you said, oh, we're going to meet at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, Without a calendar invite, there's a very good chance I will not remember that. 
or I do not have the planning capacity to go write that down somewhere else. So it really isn't much to think through, but I know everybody's very different. And I look at accommodations as all that we're doing is giving people what they need to succeed. We're not giving someone an unfair advantage. It's not like when you take the bar exam with an accommodation, somebody's giving you all the answers. So you're going to pass. You are just being able to take it somewhere quiet. So maybe you're less anxious or you need large print or you need extra time because it takes you ha- it takes you twice as long to read through the the essays on the essay section, whatever it may be. Like, I think we have this version of accommodations that it is essentially some form of like cheat code in life when that's not what it is. Yeah, no, definitely not. And and so keeping on the theme of employers, I'm curious um, if you could share with us, what do you think employers can do regardless of what business they're they're in, whether it's law or tech or whatever, to be more inclusive of neurodiversity? Oh my gosh, there's so much that you can do. I think probably the best thing is assume that you already have neurodiverse teams. I think that we have this belief that there's everybody we work with is neurotypical and that neurodiverse inclusion is something that's new and we have to bring in new people. You probably already work with a neurodiverse team and most people or a lot of people just haven't told you or it didn't register to you. So I look at it as how do you not just be inclusive to the new people, but also the people you already work with. A lot of it comes down to people skills, which sounds kind of silly as someone who has different social skills. But what I really mean is that we have to be good listeners and try to be empathetic. So I like to make sure that we know how to communicate with each other because so much gets lost on me. I don't do well reading between the lines. I'm very direct. Most people are not. So I even like to see how do we best communicate? Some people are great emailers, great texters, great phone people. I like to know who's good at what so that I can accommodate you. It's very easy to just ask some of those questions. And I think when we are trying to be inclusive of neurodiversity, we do not have to know somebody is neurodivergent to do that. I wish that we took more of this approach of when we design with disability in mind, even if it doesn't benefit anyone that we know right off the top of our head, that it benefits all of us. So I often think about different things that we use every single day that were actually invented as disability accommodations or disability design to help people with disabilities have better lives. And one of those things, if you didn't know, was text messages. That text messages were initially designed for deaf and hard of hearing communities. And a lot of us now probably can't live without that. That's funny. I never knew that. That's Really interesting to learn. And yeah, who who amongst us can't survive without text messaging right now? Mm-hmm. Is that SMS was purposely invented for deaf people to communicate. Wow, that's incredible. And I'm curious too, Haley, what's your thoughts on um, remote work and, and working during COVID? Is that something that you think is beneficial for neurodiverse individuals? Do you think that's helpful for them? Uh, what's your view? Everybody's different, so I'm not going to say one or the other because this is such an individualized thing. For me, working remote is fantastic. I love that I can accommodate myself. I love that I can have non-traditional hours and go based on what my brain and body needs. I love that I don't have to worry about sensory stuff. I have always been kind of better doing things on my own than being around constant people because then all that stuff makes me anxious. But it really does depend on the person. And I think that if remote work is something that is reasonable for your business or your practice, then consider it as an accommodation or just a policy that you can be flexible. That 
a lot of disabled folks actually did want to work remote before the pandemic and were denied that as a reasonable accommodation request because it was seen to be too expensive or impossible to implement. And what we've learned is that's absolutely not true. (laughs) Definitely not true. Which means that disability bias and ableism was on full display for all of those years. So that's kind of one of those quick gotcha type examples of like, uh, we're perfectly capable. I saw entire court systems go remote in about two weeks with all these judges who have been practicing since the year of the flood. Yeah, exactly. Who And we were all told there were certain things that would never go remote. And then all of a sudden they went remote. So it, it was uh, COVID really opened our eyes to a lot of things. And um, Haley, I also want to ask you, it seems like uh, in addition to having more neurodiverse individuals in the workplace, we need to get them into leadership positions. And that would seem to me to be really important as well. Uh, what's your, your thoughts and can you talk about the importance of, of putting neurodiverse individuals in leadership roles? There is this belief that once you hire people, you are done. <laughs> is that we just want people think that you just want a job and not a career. And all of us want the chance to grow. And I know before we got started, you and I were talking a little bit about mentorship and you were talking about mentoring young attorneys with me. And I was like, wow, that's great. And at the back of my head, I was thinking, you know, nobody really took that interest in me when I was a new attorney. And then and then a lot of it would get shifted onto me like, well, you need to seek it out. And It's like, but what if I do? And these people don't understand where I'm coming from or they're not interested. So when I was in practice as a new lawyer, we all got assigned mentors and my assigned mentor never met with me. And I didn't know if it was because my assigned, I, we were supposed to go to lunch the first time and my assigned mentor canceled on me and we never rescheduled as much as I pushed for it. And I'm like, wow, that that's your mentor's fault. That's your mentor's fault. But as a communication thing, and this is what I talk about neurodivergent folks, I thought that I did something wrong. You did not. I know that now, but I would have really appreciated if my mentor at the time either didn't take on a mentee as part of this program or told me, you know, I really do care about you and I'm glad that you're here, but I don't have the time to dedicate to this. Here's someone else who might be a better fit. Like, I would have appreciated that. Exactly. That should have been the approach. Your mentor obviously didn't have time to dedicate to you. He should have not been a mentor and handed you off to someone who had the time. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. And for me, especially because I don't know and don't understand a lot of those nuances, I genuinely was like, I must have done something wrong. Maybe I picked the wrong restaurant or didn't know this person had a case on their docket or I should have known differently. And that's not what it is. But that's why I say a lot of being inclusive comes down to communication. And I know some people think that being really direct like that of like, I don't have the time might sound kind of rude or standoffish when really I just would like to know that I did not do something wrong. And I would have appreciated the honesty, even if it is that blunt, that everybody I know has a very different take on that, but that's kind of mine. I think just have us all honestly give us the chances. If you are a neurodivergent person and you are in a position of power authority, definitely try to make some culture change. And also don't be afraid to bring in and mentor others like you because it's so powerful feeling represented. And I know this goes for not just disability and neurodiversity, but for anyone who's ever been at the margins of anything, but representation truly matters. Yeah, the whole see me, be me. Exactly. You want folks who are like you or that have a similar background or life experience. Like, it's really exciting to me when I do hear from other neurodivergent attorneys or even just seeing other neurodivergent women, like things like that. Like, it inspires me. And it's also like, wow. And then I also realize now at this point in my career, 
But there are neurodivergent folks and neurodivergent girls in particular who want to go to law school or who think that that's something that they can do. And that's so powerful because they realize it's possible because they never saw someone or felt reflected in our profession. Like things like that matter. So be that change that you wish to see if you have the ability to do so. Haley, thank you so much for sharing that. That was very well said. And Haley, I wanted to close the podcast by thanking you for all the advocacy you're doing for neurodiverse individuals. And given that, if you could have any three wishes granted with respect to neurodiversity and neurodiverse individuals, what would those be? I want all neurodivergent people to find joy and happiness in their lives and realize that nothing is wrong with them. (laughs) I think that we have this tendency to believe that we're broken or failed versions of normal because that's what society kind of reinforces. But we are just enjoy because so much of what we talk about in the broader space is focused on everything that's hard for us. People ask me more about what I struggle with more than what I actually enjoy. So try to find joy in your life. I want, I wish for you to have joy I wish for you to have acceptance and I wish for a world where we don't have to have this conversation because we somehow have completely eradicated ableism. Well, Haley, I wish you nothing but joy going forward on your career. And thank you so much for all your insights and time today and and spending this time with me. This has been absolutely um, my pleasure. and, And this has been just such a great experience. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? You can find me online. I have a website at HaleyMoss.com. You can send me an email at Haley at HaleyMoss.com. Or you can also just be a social media friend. And I say this because I'm very online. I've I've mentioned this in plenty of interviews and things. I always joke about it. I am a millennial. I'm in my 20s. I live on social media on my phone. So you can also say hello to me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever makes you feel most comfortable and feels most accessible to you. Well, great. Thank you so much again, Haley. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.